one. This is the final uh, installment in our series on the peripheral canon. And um, it took me a little bit of time to, uh, to figure out how to close this out. We had several different ways that we could go. Um, had uh, several different ways that we uh, that we could go with this last one. I mean, there's still a number of books that we have yet to cover that we, at this point, that we're just not going to cover. And it was never my intention to cover everything. Um, you know, I thought from the beginning that the point of this was to provide sort of a first exposure to these books um, and to, to give us a, an, an introduction more than anything else. Um, so, I mean, what, what all have we been? We had two weeks of introduction. We had, uh, the, we, we had sort of an intro to the expanded wisdom tradition. Um, we looked at a uh, little bit of Baruch. We took a detour and looked at a uh, short part in Maccabees, the part about praying for the dead, and we talked about that. Sort of put the, as Walton would say, and he's not here, but as Walton would say, we put the snake on the table. Um, <laughs> I think that's pretty much everything we've covered so far. And, and my, my sort of, the, the method to the madness here for me has been to draw attention to what's already part of our tradition. So to look at the parts that are in our lectionary, um, to look at some of the theological things that we hold so dear at Christ's community and see how these books inform those. Um, things like Christ as the Logos, and the you know the living word, and what these books have to say about that, and how they informed how the church fathers saw that as they were formulating their doctrines and theology. Um, this last one is um, is a little different. Instead of a, an entirely new book, it's an it's an it's a longer version of a book that we're quite familiar with, and that's Esther. Um, the Hebrew version and the Greek versions are not very different, except where they are. And where they are, they're very different. Um, they, there's, there's entire sections that are in the Greek version that is the Catholic and Orthodox version uh, that you won't find in our Protestant Bibles. Um, and um, I, I think in the spirit of drawing attention to what we're already doing at Christ's community, I think the way we look at Esther um, is completely in line with this other version. Um, the emphases that you'll find in these excerpts that we're going to look at are exactly the kind of thing that we say is most important about Esther in the first place. And to that end, I will resurrect this old pamphlet here that we were led through a number of years ago 
Um, this is uh, by our very own Craig Davis, the church in the book of Esther. Um, uh, some of us were here for that. Some of us weren't. Uh, do you remember how many years ago that was when you led us through it? It was, uh, it was the summer that Ross led us. 2015, 2016? Uh, 14. 14? Uh, we this on video during the pandemic, so it's actually on Oh, there we go. Okay, a more recent version. Okay, well, um, I, we haven't discussed this beforehand, but would you like to give a, a quick summary of sort of how we interpret Esther? How, how detailed do you want? How, how long do you want? Okay, well, let's, let's start with the framework that in the words of Christ on the road to Emmaus that the entire Old Testament is about him, right? And so everything is, is the, all of these stories are, um, are, are not just allegorical. I mean, they are allegorical, but it's more than that. It's like the patterns are being set in place ready for Christ to take up the fulfillment. So Esther is nested in our Christian story, the larger story, as a representation of what's going on with Christ in the church. Well, and, and my, my be fun to mention too that, that Luther wanted Esther kicked out of the back of the Bible. Yeah. <laughs> he didn't see any value in it, but... Uh, booklet I call it a parable and it's I'm not saying it's not a true event uh, but that God made events happen um, as a parable of essentially where we are in the, in the church age uh, and uh, this all started off with a little reading from Urbanus Morris which you might be I don't know if that's the book that Esther book that you've got there next year or not but uh, he, he, just, he just mentions that Vashti who was the original queen represents Israel mm-hmm. uh, and uh, the king uh, that just kind of set me in motion so the king uh, divorces Vashti slash Israel and takes on a new bride uh, the church slash Esther uh, Esther has a cousin who has raised her Mordecai uh, together they represent the church Mordecai, the church in suffering, Esther, the church in glory, which is very interesting in that they exist at the same time. Yes. Uh, which is God's perspective. Uh, then this uh, guy rises to power named Haman, uh, and he hates Mordecai. And because of Mordecai's view, he hates the Jews uh, in general. So he works up this scheme for all the for all the Jews to be killed is, is like the original Holocaust. Um, and they set a date for it. And uh, yeah. uh, so Mordecai tells Esther, you've got to use your position with the king uh, to uh, uh, intervene. Uh, and so she does. She mediates uh, between, uh, between the church and suffering, the church bride, the glorious bride, presence before the king, you know, makes all things right, and uh, first Haman is humiliated, and then he is destroyed, uh, so he is the same character here, uh, and so it's it's a parable of the uh, conflict in the heavenlies, as I like to say, and, uh, uh, you know, it, is, it speaks to what's happening to us right now, uh, and then, uh, uh, the only other thing I'd add is that Haman is 
exhibition. That's great. Thank y'all for coming. This was good. <laughs> okay, so a couple things. Uh, Esther and Mordecai are sort of dual representations of the church. All right, there's your now and not yet, that tension that we're living in now. You know, we are, on one hand, waiting and suffering. On the other hand, we are already seated with Christ in glory. These are both true, right? And so this story has both, and um, you have two different characters that are both uh, stand-ins for the church at the same time. Um, also, I, I, would like to, I would like to point out that this sort of uh, uh, parable interpretation has been the way that the, the fathers have interpreted this story from the beginning. If you go and look at this book here, this is, this is uh, just the church fathers quoting, you know, giving their sermons and their, you know, letters. It's just the th- in their writings, it's, um, it's grouped by book of the Bible. So everything that they've said about Esther. And it's all about the, the parable. It's all about Christ and the church and um, how this is sort of a microcosm of the big grand story. Now, it's a little less obvious to us at first in our, in our Protestant inclinations, not to, not to bash on our tradition at all, but there is a hurdle that we have to cross because we're used to thinking of the story of salvation as being basically um, like a courtroom and we're passively receiving the verdict, guilty or not guilty. That's, that's sort of how we're used to thinking about salvation. And, um, I mean, I personally think that is the source of a lot of spiritual anxiety that a lot of people feel. I think that is, uh, I think it's helpful in some, in some ways. It does explain some of what's going on, but it's not, it's not the only way to talk about salvation. And I think you actually even cover this in the book, that um, the story of salvation is far more than just passively hearing guilty or not guilty. It is, it is a story of uh, well, as Craig would say, the conflict in the heavenlies. It is a story of spiritual warfare. And um, uh, far long before the um, sort of atonement theory of salvation was put together, there was another theory of salvation called Christ as victor, right? And that is, um, you know, that is just as much, uh, uh, that, that, is, that is just as real a way of talking about our salvation as uh, the atonement theory. These things are not mutually exclusive, right? They're two. They're they're different ways of talking about the same thing, which is the mystery of salvation. Um, so when you talk about Christ as victor, you're talking about spiritual warfare. You're talking about Satan shamed and defeated. You're talking about the church exalted, right? So there's uh, you know Haman uh, hanged on the gallows and Mordecai exalted into his place, um, and uh, you know is a story of uh, of fighting and, and glory and it's Revelation 12, the dragon and the angels, spiritual warfare that's going on all around us and our engagement in that story is what we call priesthood right, and so this ties in with what I've been working on for years about priesthood because um, as we worship and as we fellowship with each other and as we uh, live our normal daily Christian lives, we are Engaging in spiritual warfare. As we suffer, we are engaging in spiritual warfare. I think at one point Craig said in this book that um, all suffering 
all suffering is spiritual warfare. Now, we're not used to thinking of it that way, but it is the case. Um, whether we like it or not, open war is upon us. That's a quote from Lord of the Rings, um, where uh, you know the king doesn't want to be in war. He just wants to live in peace. And uh, you know he has to be told, look, open war is upon you, whether you would wish it or not. This is the world that we live in. We are in a world at war. And uh, this is Pentecost Sunday. We're talking about the Holy Spirit, and we're talking about um, we're talking about the church's active participation in the spiritual realm. So that is the place that Esther has for us in the books, and that is why Martin Luther was wrong to, you know, try to remove it. Um, at, you know, at first glance, it doesn't seem like it fits in with the rest of the Bible. It doesn't mention God once. Except it does in this version that we're about to read. This version uh, is full of prayers and, um, you know, it's a, it's a much more heavenly-minded perspective on the story. And, um, and it fits perfectly with the way we already are interpreting Esther. We're already nesting it in this sort of, um, in this story of uh, spiritual war and salvation and Christ as victor, um, where you see that even more clearly when we read this version of the story. Uh, this, this version is much more apocalyptic. It's much more um, God-centric. You come away reading this version thinking the book shouldn't even be called Esther because it's not about Esther. It's about what God is doing. Esther is just a part of the story, and she is... Um, you know, I thought maybe the book should have been called... Um, uh, lots, as in casting lots, because the the book Esther is um, it's about the story behind the feast Purim in the Jewish tradition. Well, Purim means lots; that's what it means, um, and it's about God working in the world through spiritual warfare, through earthly warfare and conflicts. Um, through all of that, Christ is shown. God has shown to be sovereign. And that is the perspective of this version of the book. So, um, anything y'all would like to draw attention to or comment on before we dive in? Yeah. You did. Yeah. Yes, yes, absolutely. It's a question of emphasis. It's, we're not used to thinking about, you know, I think Walton calls it the excluded middle, if I remember correctly. Yeah, it's, it's an aspect of our daily life that we don't often give attention to. And part of that is because we're Westerners. Part of that is because we're modern. Part of that is because of the Enlightenment. There's a lot of reasons why we don't think about conflict in the heavenlies. But it's real. We're our own worst enemies, our flesh is bad enough. Yeah. And I think that you say the modern world, like to hear the word demons, 
Um, I have on the first page of our little our little booklet here um, a basic outline of the Book of Esther, and um, this is a very normal structure for Bible stuff. This is called a, a chiasm or chiasm. Um, it's very normal in Bible type stuff for there to be uh, different components that lead towards. Uh, some crucial thing in the middle and then it expands back out and everything uh, sort of mirrors everything else on its way back out. Now, it, one example of this would be in the Gospels. Um, I think it's in the Gospel of Mark. The parable of the fig tree um, is, you know, that, that structure is a, a chiasm where there's a, there's, a, uh, there's a teaching and then he curses the fig tree, and then there's a teaching after that, and those two teachings sort of inform each other. But the important thing is the parable of the fig tree, and that's what it's all about. Now, that's just one example. This is all over the Bible. This happens. The entire book of Song of Solomon is one giant chiasm. And this is helpful if you know this because you can find out what the most important part is. If you can see that structure, then you can go all the way towards the center of the X, and you can see, okay, this is the crux of what's being talked about. Well, we've been saying that this is about spiritual warfare, right? And this is about the church being exalted while Satan is shamed. Well, look at in this structure what the center of the entire story is, right? Haman humiliated and Mordecai exalted. The centerpiece of this entire story is there, the spiritual warfare, right? And everything else like all of the components leading up to that have mirrors all the way back down between the prologue and the epilogue. The prologue and the epilogue are, are, are parts in the story that you haven't heard before. This is in the Greek version and not in the Hebrew version. The Hebrew version starts with the two feasts and Vashti being, you know, ex, ex, expelled and all of that. Um, in this version, uh, we have a prologue that we're about to read from Mordecai's perspective where he shares a dream that he had of the events in Esther. And it's a, it, it sets the stage for you to think of it in a much more apocalyptic revelation or Daniel kind of way. Um, and it sort of sets the tone for how we're supposed to approach this story as a story of spiritual warfare, of revelation, dragons and war and all of that. So um, i trying to think if there's anything else before we dive in. As much as time permits, I'd like to just read this sec these sections that are unfamiliar. I've got them all written out here so we can read together. Um, the historical timeline is there. If you find that interesting, it's there for you. The part in italics is Esther, and everything else is the surrounding stuff. So starting with Jerusalem getting sacked by Babylon, um, all the way up to the story of Nehemiah rebuilding the wall. Um, Esther, as I understand, was sort of a contemporary of Ezra, Haggai, Nehemiah. This was all happening around the same time. So the story of Nehemiah is the story of Jews returning to the promised land. The story of Esther is, well, what's happening with the Jews that stay in Babylon? So these stories are sort of happening roughly simultaneously. Um, so, yeah. 
Anything else before we before we go into it? Uh, yeah. One, one other historical detail: the uh, stuff that is happening in Esther is actually in the city of Susa, which is even further away, east in Persia. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, you would think that God would be against people who did not go back to the promised land. That's not the case. <laughs> he's he's uh, he loves them just as much. They they've chosen to go further away from the land and uh, use them just as much. Well, it wasn't the case for Daniel either. You know, Esther yeah. and Daniel are sort of twin stories that are about you know the church being the church in the context of Babylon and you know sort of end times sort of stuff. Um, they're sort of twin stories in my mind. In the second year of the reign of Artaxerxes, um, in our Hebrew version, the version in our Protestant Bibles, um, he's called uh, Ahasuerus. This is the same. This is the Greek name for the same person. Uh, Xerxes and Ahasuerus are the same person. On the first day of Nisan, Mordecai, son of Jairus, son of Shimei, Shimei, I don't know how to say that, son of Kish, of the tribe of Benjamin, had a dream. He was a Jew living in the city of Susa, a great man serving in the court of the king. He was one of the captives whom King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon had brought from Jerusalem with King Jeconiah of Judea. And this was his dream. Noises and confusion, thunders and earthquake, tumult on the earth. Then two dragons came forward, both ready to fight, and they roared terribly. At their roaring, every nation prepared for war to fight against the righteous nation. It was a day of darkness and gloom, of tribulation and distress, affliction and great tumult on the earth. And the whole righteous nation was troubled. They feared the evils that threatened them and were ready to perish. Then they cried out to God. Hey, look, it mentions God. How about that? And at their outcry, as though from a tiny spring, there came a great river with abundant water. Light came and the sun rose and the lowly were exalted and devoured those held in honor. Mordecai saw in this dream what God had determined to do, and after he awoke, he had it on his mind, seeking all day to understand it in every detail. Now Mordecai took his rest in the courtyard with Gabatha and Thara, the two eunuchs of the king who kept watching the courtyard. And what happens here at this point is that uh, Mordecai overhears a plot to overthrow the king, and uh, he kind of rats him out, and, and uh, the king gets rid of the eunuchs, and Mordecai is um, honored to serve in court from there on out. So um, that is the start of the story of Esther. And it starts with this thing that sounds like it's straight out of Revelation, this dream of dragons and uh, noise and lightning and earthquake uh, and war over the earth, this sort of apocalyptic setting. Um, now that in and of itself sort of changes the way you read the story because you, you, get, you read it with this sort of bigger picture in mind that it's not just about Esther. It's not just about Mordecai. This is already, um, you know, a small-scale version of something much bigger going on. So any, any thoughts on that section before we move on to an excerpt from Chapter 4? You all know kind of what happens in between 
um, we can uh, go back to our outline if need be. Um, uh, Vashti is rejected. Esther is made queen. Um, and then the plot is discovered that Haman is uh, plotting the Holocaust, essentially. And, um, and Mordecai and Esther together sort of uh, uh, scheme to, to uh, make things right. But in the story, uh, the Hebrew story, um, it doesn't include their prayers to God and um, sort of their, their desperation, their, um, their, their desperate need of him to be the one to actually move the chess pieces along, you know, and the Hebrew version, in my mind, sort of makes Esther the hero of the story. Well, that's not the case in this one. Um, this, this entire pair of prayers, first Mordecai's prayer and then Esther's prayer, makes it all about God and what God is doing. Um, so now we read from chapter 4. Um, then Mordecai prayed to the Lord, calling to remembrance all the works of the Lord. And he said, O Lord, Lord, you rule as king. There is your Christ as victor, king over all things. For the universe is in your power, and there is no one who can oppose you when it is your will to save Israel. For you have made heaven and earth and every wonderful thing under heaven. You are Lord of all, and there is no one who can resist you, the Lord. You know all things. You know, O Lord, it was not in insolence or pride or any love of glory that I did this and refused to bow down to this proud Haman. For I would have been willing to kiss the soles of his feet to save Israel. But I did this so that I might not set human glory above the glory of God. And I will not bow down to anyone but you who are my Lord. And I will not do these things in pride. You see in this version there is an emphasis on idolatry. There is an emphasis on who will you bow down to? Who will you set your worship on? That's a, an emphasis that you see in this version that maybe you don't necessarily get in the, in the Hebrew version. And now, O Lord, God and King, God of Abraham, spare your people, for the eyes of our foes are upon us to annihilate us, and they desire to destroy the inheritance that has been yours from the beginning. Do not neglect your portion which you redeemed for yourself out of the land of Egypt. Hear my prayer. Have mercy upon your inheritance. Turn our mourning into feasting so that we may live and sing praise to your name, O Lord. And do not destroy the lips of those who praise you. And all Israel cried out mightily, for their death was before their eyes. So that's the first prayer. And then Esther, who is also the church, is also praying. And her prayer is a mirror of the other one. And it says, Then Queen Esther, seized with deadly anxiety, fled to the Lord. You see her fear in this version. You see how terrified she is. She took off her splendid apparel, put on the garments of distress and mourning. And instead of costly perfumes, she covered her head with ashes and dung. She utterly humbled her body. Every part that she loved to adorn, she covered with her tangled hair. She prayed to the Lord God of Israel and said, O oh my Lord, you only are our king. Help me, who am alone and have no helper but you. For my danger is at hand. Um... Quick aside, this word helper in uh, Hebrew, um, in Genesis, when uh, I think it's Genesis 2, when God makes a helper for Adam, you know, talking about Eve, um, you know, we translate that helper or help meet 
um, it's the same word that is only ever else in the Bible used of God. Anywhere else you find that word, it's talking about God in particular. And it's better translated something like uh, like lifesaver, something like that. Um, um, you are my helper in distress would be something that the psalmist would say. Um, you are my, my help meet, no, my lifesaver. And that, that is what this word means. I have no helper but you, for my danger is in my hand. Ever since I was born, I have heard in the tribe of my family that you, O Lord, took Israel out of all the nations, and our ancestors from among all their forebearers were an everlasting inheritance, and that you did for them all that you promised. And now we have sinned before you, and you have handed us over to our enemies because we glorified their gods. You are righteous, O Lord. And now, and here's the spiritual warfare at play, and now they are not satisfied that we're in bitter slavery, but they have covenanted with their idols to abolish what your mouth has ordained and to destroy your inheritance, to stop the mouths of those who praise you and to quench your altar and the glory of your house, to open the mouths of the nations for the praise of vain idols and to magnify forever a mortal king. She's not talking here about um, just nations quarreling amongst each other and Israel caught in the middle. This is a this is a intentioned effort to destroy what God has done. This is this is this is the demonic stuff that she's talking about. She's talking about the conflict in the heavenlies, the demons, and what they're about. They're after the people of God here. They are well. They're the adversaries. That's what Satan means. His adversary. It doesn't mean God's adversary. It means the adversary of us. Um, o Lord, do not surrender your scepter to what has no being. Do not let them laugh at our downfall, but turn their plan against them and make an example of him who began this against us. Remember, O Lord, make yourself known in this time of our affliction and give me courage, O King of the gods and master of all dominion. Put eloquent speech in my mouth before the lion. Remember how many times in the Bible the devil is called a lion? And turn his heart to hate the man who is fighting against us so that there may be an end of him and those who agree with him. But save us by your hand and help me who am alone and have no helper but you, O Lord. You have knowledge of all things, and you know that I hate the splendor of the wicked and abhor the bed of the uncircumcised and of any alien. You know my necessity, that I abhor the sign of my proud position which is upon my head on days when I appear in public. I abhor it like a filthy rag and do not wear it on the days when I am at leisure. And your servant has not eaten at Haman's table, and I have not honored the king's feast or drunk the wine of libations. Your servant has had no joy since the day that I was brought here until now, except in you, O Lord God of Abraham. O God, whose might is over all, hear the voice of the despairing and save us from the hands of evildoers and save me from my fear. Um. Esther is a tortured soul in this story. Yeah. And you really see that in this version, that she is, she, is, uh, she is Job here. She and Job are both uh, small versions, microcosms of the church. So, thoughts? Well, just, just as a reminder, all of this came about because Haman somehow got himself elevated to second in the kingdom. Uh, and that was not good enough, but he, he, he was 
of Satan in that as well. You know, Lucifer being the most beautiful and the most wise. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but he wanted worship. So he manipulated the king into ordering a decree that everyone would bow down to Haman. Uh, so again, satanic. Uh, but Mordecai refuses. So, so Mordecai, Mordecai actually is guilty of breaking the king's decree. His only hope is Esther's relationship with the king. Uh, and having said that, in verse 41, I think my reading of that would be to put elephant's speech in my mouth before the lion, as in the lion of Judah. Mm. Uh, Talking about the king. Yes, God put eloquent words in my mouth to, to offer to the king mm. uh, so that it, and turn his heart to hate the man who was fighting us. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, which he already does. Now, now uh, apparently, uh, the scholars kind of, and on the surface, it seems like the king here is fairly easy to manipulate. Maybe he's a bit of a dope. Uh, but, you know, seeing him as God, that is not the case. This is something that God does. And you've already invoked Job here. So, you know, God didn't have to bring up Job's name to save him. And when Satan accused Job, what Job might do, God didn't have, he didn't have to say, well, go for it. You know, he, he, he could have said, well, hands off. Yeah. So he, is, he allows stuff like this. And it, and it is because suffering is where the rubber meets the road. And it's all intended to knock us off track of our faith. So, you know, do you, he told Satan, do your best with Job. Because he was sure that Job would not be knocked off to his faith. That's great. <coughs> well, the suffering is not uh, eternal. No, it's all temporary. It's only temporary. And, uh, but, so, it'd be it, but if you're not there, your suffering is going to be eternal. <coughs> yeah. difference. The thing that I see in this, which I think is really good, I've not really noticed it before, is that you know, when, when we have, when fear takes over us, no matter what kind, no matter what the fear is, the best thing we can do is run to God and fear God. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's where you'll be free from the fear that you're in. Yeah. So that, that's a that's a good thing for us to learn as Christians. And we're always running into something that scares the bejeebies out of us. You know, so take that, run to God with it as fast as you can, and give to Him, lay it at His feet. So the other thing is about putting the right person on the throne of your life. Who's who's in command? Making making wrong things right, which is the work of God. Yeah. Yeah, it's very clear in this prayer of Esther's that um, there, she, there's no confusion in her mind as to who is on the throne. You know, and it's not her husband; it is it is Yahweh. So um, we all know what happens. We all know the end of the story. Um, as part of the wrong being made right, a second decree is sent out. 
and sort of reverses the previous one. Um, and that is included in the Hebrew story that a decree was sent out. But in this version, we actually read the decree itself. It's, actually, it's included what this, uh, this second order coming from the king um, is actually part of the story. So that's it's an uh, extra part of uh, chapter 8. So the following is a copy of this letter. The great king, Artaxerxes, to the governors of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, and to those who are loyal to our government, greetings. Many people, the more they are honored with the most generous kindness of their benefactors, the more proud do they become, and not only seek to injure our subjects, but in their inability to stand prosperity, they even undertake to scheme against their own benefactors. They not only take away thankfulness from others, but carried away by the boasts of those who know nothing of goodness, they even assume that they will escape the evil-hating justice of God, who always sees everything. This is in the king's decree. And often many of those who are set in places of authority have been made in part responsible for the shedding of innocent blood and have been involved in irremediable uh, uh, calamities by the persuasion of friends who have been entrusted with the administration of public affairs. When these persons, by the false trickery of their evil natures, beguile the sincere goodwill of their sovereigns. What has been wickedly accomplished through the pestilent behavior of those who exercise authority unworthily can be seen, not so much from the more ancient records that we hand on as from investigation of matters close at hand. In the future, we will take care to render our kingdom quiet and peaceable for all by changing our method and always judging what comes before our eyes with more equitable consideration. For Haman, son of Hamadatha, a Macedonian, really an alien to the Persian blood and quite devoid of our kindliness, having become our guest, fully enjoyed so fully the goodwill that we have for every nation, that he was called our father and was continually bowed down to by all as the person second to the royal throne. But unable to restrain his arrogance, he undertook to deprive us of our kingdom and our life, and with intricate craft and deceit asked for the destruction of Mordecai, our savior and perpetual benefactor, and of Esther, the blameless partner of our kingdom, together with their whole nation. He thought that by these methods he would catch us undefended and would transfer the kingdom of the Persians to the Macedonians. So there's some of the greater, you know, workings at play, kingdoms, you know, against each other. It's not just Mordecai's arrogance. There's also other stuff going on. But we find that the Jews who were consigned to annihilation by this thrice-accursed man are not evildoers, but are governed by most righteous laws and are children of the living God, most high, most mighty, who has directed the kingdom both for us and for our ancestors in the most excellent order. There's a summary verse right there for you. That is the story of Esther, the living God who has directed the kingdom both for us and for our ancestors in the most excellent order. There's the the lots, the things outside our control that God is shaping the course of history, making way for the Messiah, as it turns out. You will therefore do well not to put in execution the letter sent by Haman, son of Hamadatha, since he, the one who did these things, has been hanged at the gate of Susa with all his household. For God, who rules over all things, has speedily inflicted on him the punishment that he deserved. Therefore, post a copy of this letter publicly in every place and permit the Jews to live under their own laws and give them reinforcements 
so that on the 13th day of the 12th month, on that very day, they may defend themselves against those who attack them at the time of oppression. For God, who rules over all things, has made this day to be a joy for his chosen people, instead of a day for destruction for them. Therefore, you shall observe this with all good cheer as a notable day among your commemorative festivals, so that both now and hereafter it may represent deliverance for you and the loyal Persians, but that it may be a reminder of destruction for those who plot against us. Every city and country without exception that does not act accordingly shall be destroyed in wrath with spear and fire. It shall be made not only impassable by human beings, but also most hateful to wild animals and birds for all time. So there's your, there's your apocalyptic stuff like yeah. Revelation. You know, the, the whole place, you know, if you don't, if you don't follow this, you're going to be barely even any ashes left. It's eternal. It, yeah, it sounds pretty eternal, doesn't it? It sounds like hell. Eternal um, torture. What what do you want to choose? Yeah. Some temporary setbacks, or you want to be set back for eternity? Yeah. Um, and then we have an epilogue in which Mordecai goes back to the dream that he had at first. And Mordecai said, These things have come from God. For I remember the dream that I had concerning these matters, and none of them has failed to be fulfilled. There was the little spring that became a river. There was light and abundant water. The river is Esther, whom the king married and made queen. The two dragons are Haman and myself. There's your conflict, the church and the devil in spiritual warfare. The nations are those that gather to destroy the name of the Jews. And my nation, this is Israel, who cried out to God and was saved. The Lord has saved his people. The Lord has rescued us from all these evils. God has done great signs and wonders, wonders that have never happened among the nations. For this purpose, he made two lots, one for the people of God and one for all the nations. And these two lots came to the hour and moment and day of decision before God and among all the peoples. And God remembered his people and vindicated his inheritance. So they will observe these days, and so then it, then it talks about how this will be remembered at the annual feast, Purim, the Feast of Lots. And then in the last verse, verse 14, it talks about how um, this story came to the Greek language in the first place. It explains how, um, I think if I read this verse correctly, it basically says that the, the story came to the library at Alexandria, and it was translated from there. Um, when it talks about going to Egypt... The letter being brought, I think it's talking about Alexandria. So, um, and then you know, from there it is preserved, and we're reading it today. So, um, any thoughts on these other two sections? It's a, as I said before, it's it's a much more heavenly minded view of the story. It's still the same story, but the emphasis is very different. Uh, it's not about uh, the heroine Esther. It's or even really about Mordecai. Even though it's being told partially from Mordecai's perspective, it's, uh, it's about what God is doing, and you know. You may have talked about this before we came down. Yeah. About why this book was rejected from the canon? Uh, well, Esther. It, it sounds pretty good. Sounds, like sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Pretty yeah, good. yeah. <laughs> Esther itself almost didn't make it. Esther was the last. If I if I remember correctly, and I'm this is going off memory, but I think Esther was the last book to be accepted in the Jewish canon. Even among the Jews, it was not obvious that it was 
on the same level of divine inspiration as some of these other books. Um, for one thing, the story, you know, it's, it's a recounting events that happened much later. But also, especially in the Hebrew version, it's just not really obvious that it's about God, you know. But this version is very clearly. So, um, you know, I think, I don't think there's any sort of conspiracy that happened. I think it's just that as we, as we have considered Hebrew to be the primary language that we draw from, we just use the Hebrew version. And I think it just, I think it's almost kind of arbitrary how it happened, if that makes sense. But a lot of history is that way. The Masoretic text arose around 800,000 uh, AD. AD, yeah. And was accepted by Protestant uh, translators eventually. Sure. Because yeah. It was the original language. Yeah. Well, that was when they when they translated things for, into Latin. They were basing it off Hebrew, and it just kind of went on from there. So. This, uh, if this is the Cleopatra. Ptolemy before she ran off with Mark Anthony. Uh, this would have been about 50 BC. So this extra stuff, you know, found in the in the archives in Persia, that that may be why it's not accepted in the Hebrew text because it was a, you know, 400 years later it's discovered out east. Um, <laughs> so, okay, so, yeah, so what you're saying is that this this version really only survived out east. Well, I mean, that's what it's, it sounds like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, they, they found it in Persia. You know, it was sort of rediscovered later. And, and took it to Egypt and yeah. probably, probably Alexandria to the library. And, yeah, yeah. And translated there. So it had to have been translated out of something mm -hmm. into Greek. Sure. Um, well, even even in the book of Esther, and I don't remember if it's this way in the Hebrew version, but in in chapter nine, as I was when I was rereading it, I was reading it in the this version. So I, I don't know if this was included in the Hebrew or not. But somewhere in chapter nine, it talks about how there were multiple uh, writings of the story. The story was recorded multiple times. Um, Esther wrote her own account of what happened. Uh, Mordecai wrote an account of what happened. And what we have is most likely kind of a blending of the two. Um, in the same way that Luke compiled stories together when he wrote the gospel that we know as the gospel of Luke, it says at the beginning that he, he went around and you know got everybody's testimonies and kind of edited it all together. Acts, the Psalms, yeah. The act of editing is part of process of inspiration with these stories. I mean, that's just kind of how it works. So, Most films, are, they're, they're made on the editing, the editing booth, yeah. and they're slicing and cutting together. So, it's, I mean, that, yeah. you see a film, that film has been edited to the labs. You know, they, um, I was watching a, a Star Wars documentary recently with Angela, and uh, they said that... Um, you know, George Lucas's genius with those movies was the editing. He is a master editor. So, you know, he's known for the special effects and all that stuff, but, but the life in, that, in those movies really comes from the editing process. So. Well, that's in, in the movie E.T., uh, Harrison Ford is, was in the, in the filming. He played the principal of the high school okay. where, where Elliot was saving the frogs. And he, he was 
Yeah, at first he, he hired somebody else to do it at first, and it was awful. And so then he did it himself, and everybody's weeping and crying and saying, this is the best movie they've ever seen. It was all the same shots. The shots were the same. But, you know, yeah. Yeah. Right. That's the way to do action. There you go. I mean, again, this is the same story. This is not a different story than what we have in our Bibles, but it's a different emphasis, a different edit. There you go. And it's, uh, it's, an, it's, it's an edit that emphasizes... God as the major player and the conflict in the heavenlies. It's almost like they've inserted commentary into the story. It, it enhances the story. Mm-hmm. It doesn't change the story one bit. Yeah. It just enhances it. It enhances it, yeah. Looking, yeah sorry, you are looking at it from a different point of view. Mm-hmm. I think it's where my, my so like Craig bringing up Cleopatra and the date could be the reason why, but I guess that, that was my question is what would lead to this being rejected even by Protestants, other than the fact that it might not be in Hebrew, yeah. is that it doesn't, compared to other apocryphal, purple canon words, there's nothing different about this. Right? I mean, it doesn't, right. doesn't change the story, it doesn't uh, question anything, it doesn't even, there's not even like a chronological issue here. Uh, it's, it enhances it. Um, so, I guess that's where my question would come at is, why are we rejecting I don't know if there's a good answer to that. Yeah. It's not in the Hebrew. Again, the measure in text. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, again, we've we've kind of, that has been a repeated question throughout this whole series. You know, we'll go through something, and then the question comes up, well, wait a minute, why is this not in our Bible? That that has been sort of a common theme. And I, I wish I had a good answer, but it does seem kind of arbitrary. I don't think it was necessarily that someone just flat out, you know, we're cutting this out of the Bible. I don't think it was really that simple. I think it was... Any editions that have the other um, pseudo-canonical books, is this extra stuff in Esther? It is with the Orthodox. I I have not read a Catholic version, but... Okay, but, but talk about like, the, the King James. Oh, oh, I don't know. I didn't think to look into that. Jim, I don't know. borrow your phone? I think there's a question of if when the other stuff was relegated, if that was too, or if they just kind of just just had the older version and just didn't yeah didn't even move it to the back. Oh. Yeah. You may have pointed this out while we're out, but Esther's not the only book this way. Daniel's is. I didn't get into that, okay. but yeah. I did mention that they're kind of twin stories. Yeah. Yeah. It kind of reminds me of the 
reminds me a little bit of like it's been a little while since I read through Kings and Chronicles, but I I remember feeling like Kings was very much just like here's the historical facts of what happened, and yeah. Chronicles feels a lot like there's a lot of like here's behind the scenes what was going on in the king's heart or what was going on with the people nice. in their hearts toward God. And I remember there being like a difference in writing style where one was much more focused on like the spiritual relationship between God and the people. And I wonder if it's because it's later. I don't know if Chronicles was written later or not, but it could be a difference in like the, the style of the way things were written down later be. versus earlier. I don't know. But well, and, and this feels more similar to like the Chronicles version of <laughs> That actually leads to some pretty significant paradoxes in the story. You know, there's there's a, there's the story where um, someone's mind has to be changed about something, and in the chronicles or in the kings, I don't remember which one. I mean, it says that God changes the person's mind, but in the other version, it's a demon. I think yeah. It's so David, which is it? He's taking the census. And, and or the something. answer is yeah. that it's it's in a sense it's both, but you're, it's just a question of which perspective. Um, yeah, I think it is. Yeah. It's... Any any conclusions over there? Uh, no, actually, what you has got is a little rundown of, of what the the books are, and just a short section. Doesn't look like they mention Esther. They do mention the Esther parts of Daniel. So, yeah, okay, so... It does mention it? Yeah. Okay. So, um, one good question to conclude this entire study would be, like, you know, where do we go from here? Um, I would recommend, if you guys want to continue reading this stuff on your own time, um, that you look at Daniel next, because that is in line with the sort of way that we've interpreted Esther. You can sort of apply this sort of way of thinking this sort of uh, apocalyptic um, uh, return of Christ focused um, conflict in the heavenlies, spiritual warfare, all of that definitely applies to the book of Daniel. I think I think I said this earlier, but in my mind, Esther and Daniel are sort of twin stories. Um, they're both about the people of God in Babylon um, waiting and yet also uh, God using them to influence history um, in a very profound way and giving them visions. Mordecai has his dream. Daniel has his visions. Uh, there really is a lot of similarity between those stories. So uh, There are some additions to Daniel, um, some parable-type stuff that happens in those stories um, that are a little strange, um, but it's not the first time that we've encountered dragons in the Bible. Dragons do show up in other places too, so don't be put off by that. Um, There's nothing strange in Daniel. Oh, no, no. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Is, is that the story of Bell and the dragon? Is that in that's Daniel? in Daniel. Okay. Yeah, that's in Daniel. Um, and there's a lot more that we haven't covered. Um, we didn't cover hardly any of the historical type stuff. Um, again, my, my whole goal with this was to provide sort of a first exposure and to sort of draw attention to the parts of that tradition that is already in line with what we're doing. And, you know, Christ as victor that very much influences the way that we think of ourselves, the way we worship. The way we worship is affected by this stuff. You know, if, if, our, if, the, if the primary way that we view salvation is sort of a passive sitting in a courtroom awaiting a guilty or not guilty verdict, well, that's going to be how we sit in the sanctuary. That's going to be how we worship. And it's going to be a very passive 
Um, it's going to be a very uh, shame-focused and guilt-focused approach to worship. But that's not how we worship. We worship very actively, and we worship joyfully, and we include all of our emotions in the experience and being caught up into the heavenlies, as Dennis used to say. Um, Christus Victor shows up in the liturgy every now and then. Every now and then, yeah. Christ by death, defeated death. We have Christ the King Sunday. We have Ascension Sunday. Yeah. And we have Pentecost. Pentecost is about our coming into sort of our, you know, priestly authority in the world. That is what this Sunday that we're about to worship is about. So thank you all. This has been great. I've really appreciated it. Thank you.